As I have recently mentioned, I have not seen in my lifetime our country more divided than it is now, politically, morally, racially, and spiritually. The so-called left and right are divided on virtually every topic. Interestingly, those divisions can be almost drawn geographically, the coasts leaning uh, toward the left and the interior more toward the right. Of course, the population centers are on the coast, making the entire country lean left, dare I say, liberal. But here's what's interesting. Many of those same coastal regions are in economic and political decline. The entire West Coast, uh, Washington, Oregon, and California, and, and much of the Atlantic Northeast. And as a result, interestingly, many are fleeing those areas to move to states with more economic stability, you know, like Texas and, and Florida, which they excoriate, by the way. For example, New York has uh, lost almost 200,000 people between 2021 and 2022, and California, are you ready, lost half a million people between 2020 and 2022. The, reasons, the reason given is so-called out-migration, uh, more leaving uh, than those coming. I, I, I've even heard that some states are considering taxing those who leave. <laughs> I, I guess you could ask, who would not want to move to places uh, with greater economic strength and prosperity, indeed with more personal freedoms? It, it's also interesting to note, while their governor is often in the news, Florida's population grew by over 300,000 in the same time period, replacing Idaho as the nation's fastest growing state. Speaking of Idaho, have you seen where uh, counties in eastern Oregon, uh, you know, next to Idaho, are interested in being absorbed by Idaho, literally to redraw the state's boundaries, making Oregon smaller and Idaho bigger. Well, why do they want to do that? The eastern part of Oregon does not want to be, uh, belong to the likes of, of Portland. They identify more with Idaho's policies, I guess, and as I understand it, the issue may soon be put to voters. Okay, so here's the problem. Those relocating bring with them their political and moral ideologies slowly turning so-called red states into blue states. It's almost as if they don't understand that their political strategies and, dare I say, moral leanings brought about the failures in their previous states. But really, none of this should be surprising to us. This democratic better, this republic experiment seems to have run its course we are going the way of all the earth, of every empire or country which has existed before us, especially as we have abandoned more and more the Christian faith. This should not then come as a surprise. Not only are, are we on a significant downward slide morally, that downward slide has been precipitated by a religious freefall, again, particularly in the Christian faith. More and more are declaring themselves agnostic or atheistic. Others are turning, turning to other world religions, and less and less are committed to the Christian faith, especially 
the evangelical faith. And so, interestingly, church membership and attendance are on a steep decline. The largest evangelical denomination, the Southern Baptists, have lost, depending on who you read, two to three million members, two to three million in the last few years. Further, in 1999, 70% of Americans belong to a church. Today, it is only 47%. For the first time in our history, it's under 50%. Notice a drop of 23% in just over 20 years. All that to say, our national decline in many ways mirrors our religious decline, again, within the Christian faith. So what's my point? Why do I I bring all of that up? Here's the question I want you to consider. Where do you want to live? Where do you want to live? You see, in our ongoing study of the book of Revelation, John is about to draw a sharp contrast, distinction, between two women and and two cities. The the two women are the beast-riding prostitute and the bride of the Lamb. The two cities are Babylon the Great and the New Jerusalem. One is the city of man, and one is the city of God. So, with whom and in which city do you want to live? Our nation has rather quickly declared its allegiance. Last week, we finished the third septet of judgments, the seals followed by the trumpets, followed by the seven bowls of uh, of plagues, which, remember, finish the wrath of God. Near the end of chapter 16, we saw when the seventh angel poured out his bowl, there were flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as had never been never been since man came to be on the earth. So we, are, we, we were told the great city was split into three parts, speaking of total annihilation. Further, the, the, the cities of the nations fell as well. The cities of this nation, some already falling, will fall for the same reasons. The great city we found was Babylon the Great, as God remembered He remembered her and her sins and gave her the cup of his fierce wrath. So now, in chapter 17 and 18, it tells us of the the fall of Babylon. Now, Now notice, chapter 17 begins with these words. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, Verse 3 says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And he goes on to identify the harlot, the prostitute, as Babylon the Great. But then skip forward a a few chapters to the chapter that that Hunter read, chapter 21, verses 9 and 10 say this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, and I will show you. Sound familiar? It's supposed to. Sound familiar? I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Did did you notice? We're supposed to notice. They're quite similar. John is drawing an intentional contrast between two cities 
and, and two women. So again, the questions this morning are these. In which city do you want to live and with what woman do you want to be found? Do you want to be identified? Important questions. So let's read our text today, all of chapter 17, to see the description of the prostitute and the beast that she rides as well. Very important, we will see her appointed end. Chapter 17, verse 1 says this, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, and the beast was full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman... Drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world, if your names aren't there, they will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And the seven kings, five have fallen, and, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Are you with me? I studied it all week, and I'm not with me. <laughs> then the ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. They, these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him, His army, are, are, are the called and chosen and faithful. And He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. I didn't know that the pages for the kids were going to be introduced today. I can't wait to see how they draw that one. You might want to show me. For God has put in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Does that clear everything up for you? This is confusing. As I, 
as last week. I intend to cover this entire chapter in one week, largely because I don't want it to come back to it next week. In this chapter, we're going to see the introduction, description, if you will, of the the prostitute and the beast, and then we're going to see the angelic description of the beast, and finally the destruction of the prostitute, which comes from the beast. That catches us a bit off guard. Again, like last week, it's not a lot of fun. And you say, Scott, have you been here? It's not been a lot of fun since like chapter five. I know. I'm not going to turn over every rock today, but simply hit the high points as we make our way through the text starting with this introduction of these two characters, the, the harlot, the, the prostitute, and the beast. One of the seven angels who had just poured out his bowl of God's judgment said to John, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, it's really important. Don't miss this. John is expecting to see the harlot's judgment which explains his reaction of astonishment, of, of great wonder in verse 6. That doesn't look like judgment yet. I can't help but think of Psalm 73 where the psalmist wonders the prosperity of the wicked. Judgment. It's coming. Hold on. Angel describes the harlot sitting on many waters, which we will find in verse 15 refers to people. Verse 2 tells us the kings of the earth committed immorality with their kind of gross, disgusting. The word does speak of sexual immorality, but we find in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 3, and especially these, write these down if you're taking notes, Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23, there you'll read a sordid tale that, that, that people engaged in idolatry were often called adulteresses. They were unfaithful. It, it's, it's descriptive. It's disgusting. They were immoral. That's likely the meaning here. While sexual immorality is often rampant within the bounds of idolatry, think of that as our nation becomes less and less Christian, it becomes more and more immoral. The angel is likely speaking of worshiping false gods here, namely the beast from chapter 13, who we know as the Antichrist. And it wasn't just, we find here, it wasn't just the kings, it wasn't just the leaders, it was the earth dwellers, unbelievers, who were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. She, she led them to lose their moral sense in idolatry and all that comes with it. Again, don't we see that mirrored in our own country? Abandon God and immorality runs rampant. Sometimes even in the church. So the angel carried John away in the spirit. The idea is either a spiritual vision or in some way spiritually transported to see this harlot. It's taken to the wilderness, which is either a place of protection. Remember the woman and her child in chapter 12. Uh, but, but like here, a place of testing and judgment. There John sees this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The same beast we saw in chapter 13 rising from the sea. He is uh, scarlet, which speaks of uh, wealth. <laughs> That's interesting. And no, perhaps even nobility. He's described further as 
He's full of blasphemous names and has seven heads and ten horns. It's exactly the description we saw in chapter 13, verse 2, speaking of his power and his authority and the blasphemous names speak of his blasphemy and hatred, his hostility toward God. We'll come back to the beast at the next point. Verse 4, we find the woman clothed with purple, a color of royalty, and scarlet, again, a, a symbol of wealth. In other words, she is that to which People will be drawn, especially if you make money and power and prestige and wealth your greatest pursuits. She, the harlot is alive and well in our country today. She's adorned with wealth, gold and precious stones and pearls. Pearls then were considered the most precious gem in, in the world in her hand, she, she, she has a, a golden cup. So far, we're kind of drawn to that. That's so far so good. Except the cup was f- full of abominations and the uncleanness of her immorality. The description is at once both provocative and repulsive. That's the way sin is, by the way. Enticing, yet in the end, repulsive and destructive. We're told that her identity, we are told her identity in verse 5, for on her forehead, remember throughout the book of Revelation, people have written names on their foreheads which identify their ownership, who owns them. On her forehead is a mysterious name written, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. To be the mother of something means she produces it. She produces harlotry. She produces prostitution. That is, this pursuit of other gods. And she produces all of the abominations, the uncleanness that goes with that. We're supposed to be repulsed by this description. Listen, who would pursue such a disgusting woman in such a deplorable city? Why would you do that? And yet we live in a world, indeed a country today, which pursues exactly that. I've said it, I'm going to say it again. Our nation has rejected the true God and pursued instead gods of their own making, largely themselves and their own pleasures, abominations. Who would have thought that we would live in a country, indeed a world, where such activities clearly condemned in Scripture are now accepted as normal as, as human freedoms, as morally acceptable, even to be celebrated, even in the so-called, even the so-called church has lost its way, calling evil good and good evil. Verse six, most challenging. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. The saints are holy ones, and the witnesses of Jesus are the same people. It's written in apposition, if you want to know that. These saints were witnesses of Jesus, which cost them their lives. Drunk on their blood. It cost a little ridicule. It cost them their lives. Because Babylon killed them. And we remember chapter 12, and they over... The saints overcame him, that is, the dragon or Satan, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. 
He's gave their lives because of their testimony to or about Jesus. And it made the harlot, the one who turns others away from Christ, it made her drunk on their blood. It is meant to be a gory picture. She was intoxicated with the deaths of God's people. Who would want to live there with her? I'm going to come back to that at the end. And so John was greatly astonished. This brings us to the second point, the description of the beast. The angel who was escorting John asked, Why do you wonder? Why are you astonished? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And he starts with the beast, carries that all the way through verse 14. Now, let's remember the context. We learned of the destruction of Babylon the Great in chapter 16, Great earthquake, remember that? Split in three parts. But now we are learning specifically how. And by the way, this is yet another very challenging passage. I don't know if you noticed that when we read it. Another challenging passage in Revelation. Some suggest the most puzzling of the book. It is interesting. John is astonished by what he sees, so the angel says he will help him understand. He will tell John, and therefore us, the mystery And then having read and studied it all week, I'm not sure that the angel was that helpful. Not trying to be disrespectful there, but it seems like he could have done a better job. Here we go. Verse 8 reminds us of what we learned about the Antichrist back in chapter 13. There we, we read, I saw one of his heads, the Antichrist, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So here we read the, the beast uh, was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss. We find out where he went when he died. He's about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. It seems to imply that the beast had been present and, and, and now was not, but soon reappear. We don't know if that all happens within the tribulation period or not. Likely so. I think so, since the implication seems to be that those alive then see the fatal wound and then see his supposed resurrection, imitating the resurrection of Christ, and they will be amazed. As we talked about in chapter 13, this bugs the heck out of me. Jesus truly was put to death for sinners and raised again the third day, and there could be no denying, and everyone ho-hums it or denies it. This beast, this false Christ, and his supposed resurrection... People will see it. They will be amazed. And I'm reminded of what Jesus said to Thomas. Remember when he appeared to the, the 12 disciples the first time, Thomas wasn't there. And, he, and they told Thomas about it. He said, I won't believe it unless I see it. And Jesus appeared and said, come and look, Thomas. Put your hand, put your fingers in my nail prints, hand in my side. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. Are you amazed? Where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. As a result, the end of verse 8 says that they will wonder when they see the beast, that is, that he was and is not and will come, and all will, all those will wonder. Notice who are the ones that will want who will wonder, those whose name has not been written in the book of life from when? from the foundation of the world. 
Now, we, we found and we'll find in chapter 20 that the book of life is the book containing the names of the righteous, the children of God, those who believe in God's provision of salvation by grace through faith. Now, of course, that, that, that comes through the death of his son, which is why the end of chapter 21 we just read, it come, it's called the Lamb's book of life. Now, we, we see the names have been written in the book of life since the foundation of the world which is intriguing. Some of you think I'm going to go off on that. Maybe I should. I'm not going to get into why the names were written there and then, but the implication seems to be that they were at some point chosen for salvation, regardless of the cause of that choice, since before time. In fact, verse 14 calls the army that will return with Jesus the called, the chosen, that's where I get the word, chosen and faithful, which means your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, before creation. That ought to breed some degree of security, don't you think? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Well, I think I know, but I'm not going to get into why God chose your name, but He did, which means, by the way, just a quick aside, there's... That old song, there's a new name written down in glory and it's mine, and yes, it's mine, is not necessarily true. In fact, it is unbiblical. Your name has been written in the book since the beginning of time. Verse 9, the angel goes on telling us that understanding what he says requires a mind of wisdom, we read the same thing back in chapter 13 regarding the number of the beast, basically the same thing, 666. There we learned that while there are lots of guesses as to the meaning of the, of the number of that name, when we need to know it, we will know it. I believe the same is true here. When we need to know what all of the angel just told us, he really probably didn't do a bad job. Um, when we need to know what the angel tells us, we will know. So any speculation, some of which I'm about to share, is just that is speculation. The angel tells us, what the symbols of the beast are. He says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now at this time in history, everyone knew that Rome was the city on seven hills or seven mountains. Clearly this beast is somehow in authority over the city of Rome. Remember, that's, that's when John is writing, when, when Rome is in power, and she is in some way in authority because she sits on the seven mountains. And we remember that John was writing Again, during the Roman Empire, specifically during the time of the emperor Domitian in the 90s, who with other emperors was seen as divine, seen as a god. And since Christians refused to participate in what's called the emperor cult, they were singled out for persecution, even martyrdom in some cases. It costs you, you see, to name the name of Christ alone. Come back to Babylon the Great. But here we see it's clearly a euphemism for, for Rome. I think, I think, representative of all cities of all time, but especially the end of time, the city of man, which stands in opposition to God and his people, which means whatever appropriate similarities exist between Babylon and Rome will be repeated many times over at the end of time. Verse 10, the angel says that the seven heads are also... Seven kings. That's weird, but you can do that. This is apocalyptic literature. You can, you can change just like with the stroke of a pen. 
A king, seven kings, five have fallen, one is, meaning ruling right now, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Lots of discussion about these seven kings. Attempts have been made to identify them as certain Roman emperors. Specifically, I think this is probably right, the ones who opposed Christianity, starting with, I think it was Caligula, if I remember correctly. Perhaps it refers to seven kingdoms, which also stood opposed to God's people. Again, lots of challenges with both of those. Clearly, five of these kings are dead. One is ruling, I think probably Domitian, and one is yet to come, another who will oppose the faith. Perhaps, but he will only reign for a little while. Then we get to verses 11 to 13. It talks about an eighth king, the beast who was and is not and who will come. He too is in line with the seven, perhaps speaking of his opposition to Christianity. None will do that more than the beast, that is the Antichrist. He's the Antichrist who will come, but he will also, when he comes, he will be on his way to destruction when his work is finished which we will read about in chapter 19. But here in verse 12 of our chapter, we read the beast had 10 horns. We, we, we saw that in chapter 13, symbolizing power, which are, we're told now, 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom. Seven kings, 10 kings. These have not yet arisen. They, they are apparently will be in power during the end of time in the tribulation along with the beast. We read that they will receive authority as kings for one hour, which simply means a limited amount of time. And verse 13 tells us that they have one purpose, to give their power and authority to the beast. These ten kings, represented by the ten horns, are aligned with the Antichrist. Now I know, I've been alive a while, I know that you've all heard about the European Union, or some resurrected Roman Empire. I, I, I frankly don't know about all of that. I think the number 10 in the book of Revelation speaks of com completion or fullness. These 10 kings speak of the rulers of the earth, wholesale, who are following the Antichrist. And we saw in chapter 16, he's going to call them together to fight all of the kingdoms of the earth to fight against the Lamb. But verse 14 tells us they will wage war against the Lamb. And we will read about this battle of Armageddon finally in chapter 19, when the Lamb arrives. But here we read that the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He will bear that title on His thigh. And He will strike down the, the beast and the false prophet. And He will strike down the nations who stand with them against Him. And His army will be His people again, the called, the chosen and therefore remain faithful. That's what this book is about. You have been called. You have been chosen. Your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Remain faithful. Which brings us to our last point, verses 15 to 18, very quickly, where we see the destruction of the prostitute. It doesn't look like destruction. She's a leading city of the day, decked out on all of the things that we pine after, right? This is what we pursue. Wealth, power, nobility, prestige. She's riding the scarlet beast. All seems wonderful. She even sits upon the waters, which now we find are, are peoples and, and multitude and nations and tongue. And we've seen that or similar lists seven times in this book, referring to people everywhere. That, that, that is, in this case, people who have been led astray by her immorality and idolatry. But verse 16 takes a rather dramatic turn. The ten horns which you saw, the ten kings which gave their power and authority to the beast, 
that's the beast that this woman is riding will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. That seems to me to be a fair degree of hostility. What's going on here? Nothing except what we've been saying from the beginning. The red dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land, the unholy trinity made up of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet hate people, even their own followers. Why? Because people are created in the image of God. True, they have rebelled against God, as we saw in chapter 16. They, they blaspheme the name of God. They refuse to repent and give Him glory. But that does not matter. Evil hates evil and brings about its own destruction. And so again, the question arises, who would want to live there? We've seen this, haven't we? We've seen this in our world. People hate people. Generally, they're envious, they're jealous, they fight, they kill, they destroy. Evil implodes on itself. The only remedy is to, is to worship. Worship the God in whose image we were created, where we will find hope and joy and peace. But as people remain dead in trespasses and sin, these they do not pursue. And so the scarlet beast and the ten kings, representative of all evil leaders and empires, will rebel against the harlot, Babylon the Great. And you say, what? That's, what? Isn't that kind of like civil war? To, to fight against the same team? Yes. Yes, it is, because evil implodes on itself. Why would, why would you live there? Why, why do they do this? Well, it's part of God's judgment. Don't miss verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose. That common purpose is self-destruction by giving their power, the power of the ten kings, to the beast. And until How long? Until the, word, the words of God throughout Scripture proclaimed by His prophets, until His words will be fully Completed, fulfilled. Evil will be defeated and banished, and God will be all in all. This is all of everything that we're reading in the book of Revelation is all unfolding according to divine plan. The woman who you saw is the great city, verse 18, Babylon, which reigns over the kings of the earth for a time, but even her doom is sure. Out of time. This brings us to the conclusion. I ask the questions. I ask them again. In which city do you want to live? And with which woman do you want to be identified? Because you see, Babylon the Great in all of its glory, right now, looks enticing. Many, even most, are drawn to her. They like what they see. She's provocative. She calls your name. And yet her condemnation and destruction are assured. Conversely, the bride of the Lamb, her future glory and exaltation are equally assured. 
So where do you want to live? But that leads to another challenge. And it goes like this. Many want to, live, uh, many want to move into the new neighborhood, the new city, but bring their politics and their morality with them. Forget politics. They want to bring their morality with them. Can you move from one city to the next without changing your citizenship? People try to do that all the time. Can you become part of the bride of the Lamb and still live like you're in Babylon? People do that all the time. Can you call yourself a child of God and live like a follower of the beast? No, you can't. Many professing believers today are confused about the freedom that we enjoy in Christ. They think freedom is a release from legalism, and there is a sense in which that is true. But biblical freedom is freedom from slavery to sin and freedom to obey Christ. We've simply exchanged masters from sin to Jesus. We've, we've, we've changed cities. We aren't free to pursue Babylon and its entitlements. We are free to pursue Christ. In Galatians 5 says it this way, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, to indulge the flesh, but through love serve one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You're not in Babylon anymore. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Sound familiar? Next word of verse 20, idolatry, and the like. And then Paul actually concludes with, of which things I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you haven't changed addresses. You're still living in Babylon. If you name the name of Christ, you are not free to pursue immorality. We are free to pursue righteousness provided through Christ. So I challenge us to live like residents of a different city, to live like we are part of the bride of Christ, to live like we are children of God. We should look different than the city from which we came. John draws a distinction here. In which city? Do you live? Stand for prayer. Father, indeed, this book has been a challenging book. But it's a book actually filled with both warning and encouragement. Warning to, to, to not 
follow the, the ways of the flesh, to not follow living like we live in Babylon, to not be engaged in immorality and idolatry. But it's encouragement to remain faithful to our Christ who died so that we could die to sin. We'd be, we could live to Christ. And so, Father, I pray for us that you would help us declare our allegiance fully and finally and faithfully to Christ. That we would live like children of God. And that we would forsake the, 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 the enticements of Babylon. And we would look forward to the new Jerusalem. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.